Okay, we can go ahead and get started here today. Uh, we've been going through the book of Second Timothy, as you all know if you've been here. Um, we're going to pick back up in chapter 3 this week, and we're going to look at hopefully verses 14 and onward. Um, I don't know how much longer we'll have in this study. I, I realize this is already the sixth week uh, since I've been up here, so... I appreciate your attention and your um, um, commitment and, and participation in the class as we've learned over the last couple of weeks. Hopefully, uh, maybe maybe three more weeks, I think. four is uh, Chapter 4 is not quite as... I mean, we, we believe all Scripture is inspired. We're going to talk about that today. But at the same time, uh, there are some parts of Scripture that uh, require a little more exegesis or maybe have a little bit more depth to them. And so I think I'll go a little faster through Chapter 4. But anyway, uh, with all that being said, let's continue on in our study of Chapter 3. Last week we talked about, um, if you guys remember or were with us, I outlined a, a sermon from John Piper, and uh, we had six different points regarding the nature of evil that Paul gives to Timothy. Um, first was the times of evil, the last days, right? The second was the severity of evil, the savage seasons, the, um, the difficulty of the, or the, the nature of the evil is going to be extreme. The third was the specifics of evil. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. Those are those characteristics that are listed there in verses 2 through 5, that we are to mark and avoid people who believe or who act in such a manner. Fourth was the creep of evil, the way it, was, it subtly creeps into our lives. In most instances, it's not something that happens overnight, but it's something that we allow into our lives, and then over time, uh, we look like a totally different person. Fifth was the limit of evil, and I didn't spend a ton of time on that, but that's just the the verse where it talks about, uh, I think it's verse 9, uh, where Paul says that these people, talking about the false teachers, will not get very far, uh, for their folly will be plain to all. And uh, that's just a wonderful reminder that even in the midst of this persecution, the Lord will triumph, and the evil will not prevail. And then the sixth thing was the alternative to evil. At least that was what uh, that was John Piper's word. I, I would almost say the antidote to evil. Uh, here's how we fight evil. Here's how we avoid these people. Here's how we endure the persecution. In chapter 2, Paul tells Timothy to endure patiently the evil, endure evil patiently, right? Uh, this is how we do that. Uh, at the very beginning of my time up here, I talked about how the entire book of 2 Timothy really is an instruction manual as to how to obey the command that we get in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 when he says, hold fast that which is good. How do we maintain our godliness in a world that is broken uh, and in a world that certainly offers us persecutions? Uh, ahead of, we talked about that last week, but the way that we're Guaranteed that we will endure persecution. So um, with just that kind of summary of what we talked about, I want to dig in a little deeper to the alternative or the antidote for evil today, talking a little bit about um, more ways or practical things that we should consider uh, for staying true to the Word of God and, and staying rooted and being firm in it. So before I do that, does anybody have any other uh, thoughts or observations, something that stuck out to you in the last couple of weeks that we've talked about, anything that we said last week that you remember to want to share with the group? Go ahead, Chelsea. Um, in verse 315, we talked about the sacred writings in the Old Testament. Mm. And I, that uh, kind of brought about some conviction because usually I am just so excited to get back to the New Testament. Sure. And um, I felt convicted that, no, this, this is important too. I really need to you know, the Old Testament. Well, praise God, yeah. Um, and, we're, and I hope to talk about, a little bit more about that today because we didn't, you know, I just kind of touched on that verse. But yeah, um, if I'm not mistaken, the, the, the word testament is 
the English translation of the Latin word for covenant, right? So we have the old covenant and we have the new covenant, and you really can't uh, understand the new covenant. It's like a you know movie with a sequel, right? If you just look, the second one may be better than the first one even, but you can't understand the second one until you understand the first one. We have to uh, understand the what what God was doing, you know, to get to the New Testament. Uh, so I appreciate that comment. Go ahead, Bethany. I think Tim shared this before. He had a seminary professor who was very particular about calling it the first and second testament. Mm -hmm. And he was very, he wasn't an Old Testament person. Mm -hmm. But he felt like calling them the old and the new did carry with it this like old, we don't need it mm -hmm. anymore, mm -hmm. it's outdated, it's censored, sure. it's irrelevant. Yeah. So he always call it the first and second testament. That's maybe a good idea. Maybe we could uh, carry that tradition forward. So, yeah, absolutely. And like I had said a second ago, hopefully we talk a little bit more about that today. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 10 through 17. And um, and then we'll, we, if anybody has any comments or observations after we read that section, feel free to share them. But we'll, we'll dive in a little bit deeper. Uh, you, however, this is verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for, sorry, I read that wrong. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay, I know we read that last week, and you know, as always, we opened up for comments. But anything this time that anybody wants to point out that stood out to you in that particular section of scripture? I guess it's just adding on to what we were talking about with the, the second second testament. Um, that all scripture is breathed in Paul's writing us just after the beginning of the New Testament. So so you're seeing all scripture. We aren't to unhitch from the Old Testament. Mm -hmm. The Old Testament is a part of what we yeah. what, what we grow by. Yeah, and, and again, maybe we'll talk a little more about that, but I appreciate you bringing it up. I, I think in that first particular statement that he makes regarding scripture where he calls them sacred writings that that's what i was referring to because he's saying these are the things that you've been acquainted with through childhood or since childhood um i think that particular reference is is to the old testament i could be wrong and somebody can disagree with me but i mean i don't i'm not sure how timothy would have had access to what paul is writing or what peter wrote or what john wrote when he was a child uh, but the second time he says that all scripture is breathed out by god I, I do think that Paul has in mind here anything that is now considered scripture, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So I think he goes from the very specific um, command to remember what he learned from childhood, and then he goes to the idea that all scripture, including what he writes and what Peter writes and, and what John writes, is, is scripture. But uh, absolutely, and, and as you said, you can't unhitch or disconnect. You have to understand both in order to really get the full picture and the full counsel of God. Anything else stand out to you guys? Go ahead, Chris. Verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So life is going to be hard, and we mm -hmm. shouldn't be surprised mm -hmm. that maybe we look a little bit different or, or maybe not accepted, or it 
hard. Yeah. Yeah, and it's uh, convicting to me because I don't know how often I am not persecuted because um, I don't you know, heed the commands of Scripture and evangelize the way that I should. And sometimes I think maybe the reason I don't feel like I've experienced as much persecution as uh, certainly other Christians in history is because we're not as, I don't know, maybe we're not reminding ourselves of that and, and remembering the fact that we, we are going to experience persecutions. Um, but we talked about that a lot, a lot last week too, the way in which uh, being rooted, and I'm going to pick up with that same point here this week, but the way that being rooted in the gospel helps us to endure persecutions, keeping a proper perspective on our rightful status before God. Um, you know, when we remind ourselves of the fact that God took on our place and died and took away eternal damnation from us and that we have uh, salvation, that, that should be the fuel that we need to obey the commands of Scripture um, because it reminds us of the fact that we don't deserve anything, right? The, his mercies are new each morning. You know, that, that whole idea is that every morning when I wake up, I have more than I deserve. God is being merciful to me. And so trying to make that um, a very real thing in our lives, sorry, my, there we go, um, is what gives us the motivation and the perspective to continue with our righteous living and our righteous conduct. Um, I want to pick up on that point and continue along in that same in that same line of thought. If you look at verse 14, uh, this is Paul's command to Timothy. He says, um, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So I want to uh, zero in on the idea that we are going to continue in what we have learned. I know we talked about this last week. We talked about it and, and reminded ourselves of what I just said, of how that gives us proper perspective uh, and reminds us of the fact that we don't really deserve anything. If we can kind of keep that in the back of our minds as we go throughout our daily lives, we'll be uh, much more motivated to be, have an attitude of gratitude and not an attitude of entitlement, uh, assuming that everything that we have we rightfully deserve, but rather thinking that you know this is a gift from God and I don't even deserve uh, what I'm receiving now. But I want to talk about the practical uh, outworkings of that. If we fail to uh, stay rooted, that's what I'm, you know, there's three points today that I'm really highlighting. Number one is staying rooted uh, in the Word of God. Uh, well, sorry, I should say staying rooted in the gospel message. We'll talk about the Word of God in a little bit, but staying rooted. Uh, if we fail to do that, what happens to us? And, and a couple of times I want to go back to the women that are listed in verse five, I'm sorry, verse six of this chapter. Uh, we've talked about them a little bit. But think about the way in which our lives parallel those women when we fail to heed the commands that Paul gives to Timothy. Uh, look at that verse again. It says, For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, and then these weak women are burdened with, uh, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. So last week I posed the question to everybody in here, why do we not move on from the gospel? I don't know if you remember talking about that a little bit, but... You know, when we go through other academic pursuits in life, we have a, a basic principle, and we don't forget the basic principle, but we don't come back and revisit it every time, right? I mean, if I learn how to read, I don't, you know, I don't go through the basics of phonics again every time I go to a new class. It's assumed that I know how to read, right? So why do we constantly remind ourselves of this gospel message? Anybody remind me of what we kind of landed on with regard to the response to that question last week? Well, I'm glad I'm saying it again then. Okay, okay. <laughs> Mm -hmm. Yep, and we talked about the fact that it's it's not 
really about pursuing uh, knowledge. That, that should mark the life of a Christian, but that's not the salvation that we uh, earn through faith in Christ, right? Uh, we want to learn more about the Word of God, but that's not what earns us uh, our salvation or our right standing before God. So when we remind ourselves of the gospel, it's, I, I think I use the analogy of it's like going back to the graveside of somebody, uh, somebody's tomb, a lost loved one, right? Uh, we don't go back to learn more about them. We already know what the tombstone looks like. We're going back to remind ourselves of the memories that we had with that individual and, uh, you know, whatever else may come to mind. In the same way, you know, when we take the Lord's Supper today, you know, we, we already know a lot of the facts of, the, you know, the, what happened at the Last Supper. Uh, we're not learning something new, but rather we're being reminded of the truth that uh, is in that particular sacrament. And so the, the reality is that uh, that's why we remind ourselves of the gospel. My question now is what happens when we don't? And my assertion is that uh, we, we kind of tend to either A, leave the faith entirely. I mean, people do that. Hopefully that's not you. Or B, we turn Christianity into a means to an end. We turn our faith into a stepping stone to get something else that we really want. Um, Paul is clear about this idea of staying rooted throughout Scripture. When I was up here the first week, I went back to Colossians 2, and I want to go there again. Uh, if you feel, or if you can, even turn there with me in your Bibles, but it's Colossians 2, chapter 6 through 7. Maybe somebody could read it for me instead of uh, me just doing the talk. Anybody want to read that particular passage? Volunteer? Jay? Okay. Colossians 2, 6 through 7. And then also, while he's looking that up, 1 Corinthians 2, one through two. Anybody want to take a stab at that? Benjamin? All right, great. So, Jay, would you uh, read for us Colossians 2, 6 through 7? Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Okay, so you see the parallels or the similarities between Colossians 2, verses 6 through 7, and 2 Timothy 3, verse 14. Colossians 2 says, As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith. Uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14 says, Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. I think that uh, literally translated, where we say firmly believed, is just that you've been convicted of. right? And remember, in Colossae, the, the heresy was Gnosticism. I don't need to revisit uh, that entire topic again, but this idea that you had to have something more than just the basic gospel. And Paul says, no, that's all there is to it. Uh, this, this is not a means to an end. This is the end. This is what you get if you become a Christian. You get salvation in Christ. Um, go ahead, Jay, and read. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Benjamin, and read 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2 for us. Absolutely. So Paul, in that particular statement... And I don't think Paul is saying there that uh, all we should do is just come in, give a simple presentation of the gospel, and go home, right? He's not suggesting that we shouldn't uh, endeavor to learn more. And I want to be clear about that, because I've already mentioned it. But when I say that we, got, we have to remind ourselves continually of the gospel, it's not to say that godly people won't desire to know more and, de and desire to have a deeper theology, a deeper understanding of the things of God. Rather, what it's saying is that that is the most important thing. I think Pastor Tim has said it a number of times since I've been here that maybe... Somebody y'all can help me out with this, but keep the plain things the plain things and the main things the main things, right? We, we can't forget what's most important. And, and really, that's the thing that gives us the, the salvation. Uh, he's used the example of being in the military, right? Just a couple weeks ago, he used that example in a sermon illustration. But, you know, maybe you think about it like going to college as well, right? When I, uh, when I apply for college and I'm accepted, I, I don't have to do anything at that point to be a college student. I can say I'm a college student before I 
go to my first course, right? And yet, it should be the characteristics of any faithful college student to desire to learn more and to grow in his knowledge of academics, right? And so we don't want to turn salvation into the diploma at the end of the college career. Salvation is the moment we become a college student. We are a Christian the moment we put our faith in Christ, and yet it should be the outward um, characteristic of any Christian to desire to be more godly and to learn. So I don't, I don't want to you know, confuse ideas here and think that we ought to do what's kind of regarded as the mere Christianity thing today where we just, okay, everybody believes in Jesus, that's it, let's go home, right? No, we want to learn more, but at the same time, let's not confuse this idea with salvation, all right? Anybody, thoughts, comments, points of contention on that issue? So thank you guys for reading. And I just wanted to read the commentary on 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. This is from the MacArthur Study Bible, but uh, I think he puts it well. Though Paul expounded on the whole counsel of God to the church and taught the Corinthians the word of God, the focus of his preaching and teaching to unbelievers was Jesus Christ who paid the penalty of, for sin on the cross. Until someone understands and believes the gospel, there is nothing more to say to them. The preaching of the cross was so dominant in the early church that believers were accused of worshiping a dead man. So this is the foundational principle. We have to get that, and we have to go back to that even when we're um, in times of difficulty or persecutions, as Paul is warning Timothy about here. So what are some ways we see this happening? Maybe some things to be aware of where we, in our culture, we see the faith, I'm going to call it the faith, or Christianity, turned into almost a, a means to an end or a stepping stone to get something else that we might want. Anybody have any thoughts or ideas? Go ahead, Kathy. I think what it is also the kind of relationship, and that as you come under the King Jesus, um, you want to follow his principles and his uh, direction and his leadership. Um, I think, you know, that the gospel gives you so much hope. Um, it's, it grows continually. The more you understand the word of God, the more the gospel. Yeah, and I've heard somebody describe it as, um, you know, if, if we think of one example of this, like the prosperity gospel, it's like marrying somebody for their money, right? I mean, um, I think of my wife and I don't want to be too much. It is Valentine's Day this week, though. So, um, but the idea like that, I don't. I'm not with her for anything other than her, right? And then we get that in marriage because we, for most of us who are married, you know, I mean, we understand the relationship is what it's about, not anything that the other person has to offer. Um, so that's a good reminder, the, the relationship element of it. What are, again, what are ways that we see people forego this? Vicki? Um, I've seen, I've talked to like, this guy that I talk to frequently. He's like, well, I got that taken care of. Mm -hmm. But there's no fruit in his life, no hunger for God. Mm -hmm. It's like, I the insurance policy believe that way yeah that's a, that's not one that I even have listed here but kind of that idea of I used to call that um, kind of lordship salvation right that all you have to do is admit that Jesus is your Lord and then you're, you're good you can wash your hands of that move on to other things anybody else have any ideas or thoughts well I listed a couple here I mean we, we see this we talk about it quite a bit here and I hopefully you've been warned about it but I mentioned it already the prosperity gospel right the idea that uh, I'm really interested in something other than Christ himself I'm interested in being wealthy you know restoring my health maybe gaining a following that's one way that we see it uh, I've also mentioned a couple of times up here as I've been teaching this uh, particular chapter 
the self-fulfillment gospel, which is you know my own term for it. You can come up with your own name. But this idea that if I follow Christ, I will become more fulfilled or a better version of myself. And I, I don't know how to best explain that, but it almost gets put in the category of like a New Year's resolution, right? Like, I mean, when I resolve to do something differently in my life, maybe it's, you know, I want to work out so because I want to look good or I want to get in shape or I want to lose some weight. Um, you know, think about, I don't really enjoy the workout. I'm, I'm actually after the result that it gets me. And we kind of put Christianity in this bucket of things where it's like, if I go to church and raise my family well, and, you know, maybe we... Um, do some godly activities that will result in a better life for me. And while it's true that there are lots of spiritual promises that come about from having faith in God, uh, what did we just read? Anyone who wishes to live a godly life of Christ Jesus will be persecuted, right? And so it's not a means to an end. It's not a way to enhance your life. It's not a betterment program. Uh, maybe another example of this, and this has become increasingly popular over the past decade or so, is this social gospel, right? This idea that Christianity, you know, can end world hunger and war and racism and these types of things. And so if we just had a, a more Christian, and often these, these groups and movements aren't even characterized by biblical you know, theology, but the idea is that through Christianity we can achieve you know, almost a utopia here on earth. And so the focus shifts from the gospel, which we're supposed to remain focused on. I mean, that's the command here is to stay uh, focused on the things that you've believed since childhood. And, and it shifts to doing good works, right? Which we're all in favor of doing good works. No, none of us here would say we should stop, uh, you know, doing what we can to end world hunger or, you know, house foster kids, as you guys learned about yesterday. But if that's all we do and we don't remember to stay connected to the message of the gospel, um, you know, what is that? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world but forfeit his soul, right? Um, and I guess you could say it this way. If we had a choice between a world with hungry children and the gospel going forth or a world with no hungry children and no gospel, I hope we would all take the former, right? The idea is that we have to have this message of hope before we can do anything socially productive that will really have any eternal value, right? And I see this a lot today with even this, um, I don't know how you all feel about this, but every time I hear it, kind of my antenna goes up. Um, the, the faith-based movements and organizations, right? I don't, they're not necessarily bad. I'm not suggesting that. But oftentimes what it is is just kind of a euphemism for like, we want to have the appearance of godliness, right? But there's not really um, any Christ-centeredness. I would prefer the term Christ-centered as opposed to faith-based, right? Because faith-based has almost lost its meaning in today's culture. A lot of times what that kind of is actually insinuating is that we're just wanting to be about good works and there's really nothing about the gospel in there, right? Uh, so I don't want to be too cynical, but that's one way that I think we see it today, where we substitute the truth of the gospel, the good news of the gospel, the uh, the rescuing, redeeming plan of God through Christ with just doing good things in society. Right? Um, and maybe one more here for you is, is the kind of the political gospel, the idea that uh, Christianity can help maintain a certain political order. You know, if we just had everybody here be a Christian, then, you know, the political world would be much better than it is now, and everybody would be happy, and, and there would be no turmoil or dissension. Now, that might be true to an extent, but again, that misses the point of what the gospel is about, right? That God's kingdom is not of this world, and his purposes are not to, you know, crown America as the, as the nation of all nations, right? Uh, so we want to be careful not to say, okay, Christianity and my faith is just kind of the, the stepping stone that I use to advance my political agenda, right? Um, just, I think we see that quite a bit in today's culture, where if you ask somebody to, you know, defend their faith with, as it pertained to the gospel, they might be at a loss for words, but they can tell you all about the political news and the events of the day. And at the time, at the same time, they would call themselves Christian. So let's be careful of that and be aware of it. I think the reason Paul is saying to stay rooted here is because he doesn't want people to get sidetracked and get led astray into these types of movements, these types of ideas, 
these types of, I'll even call them heresies. And I told you I wanted to reference the women um, in, in um, um, verse 6, right? And where they said they're led astray by various sins, um, or various passions, they're burdened with sins. I think this is kind of what happens when we don't stay rooted. We're led astray by various passions. You know, you think about one thing, and before you know it, you're just like them. You're not really rooted in anything, so you follow whoever comes your way. That's a good segment into the second point. I think the second thing that Paul commands Timothy here to do in order to endure evil patiently is observe the fruit of those who have taught him. Right. So continuing in verse 14, Paul says, um, continue in what you have learned and firmly believe, knowing from whom you learned it. Part of the reason why you should be encouraged is because you know the character of those who taught it to you. In verse 10, he reminds him of how he, Paul, reminds him, Timothy, of how Timothy has followed Paul's aim in life and his conduct and his patience. And this ought to give Timothy uh, encouragement in times of difficulty because those who have gone before him have endured to the end and God has been with them. So we are commanded to observe the fruit uh, of those. Who, who teach us. And I think that's something that we need to remember. I hope that uh, you'll do that. I hope you do that even with somebody such as myself, you know, standing up here teaching you. If, if I'm living a double life, you know, you ought to be first concerned for my soul, but secondly, you know, not regard what I say as, as something to be trusted. It doesn't mean that I couldn't actually say something true, by the way. It just means that, you know, you might want to be careful about uh, what I'm teaching. And same thing with Pastor Tim. And I see this much more frequently with people in the age of social media and the internet. I'm surprised by how many people just believe whatever uh, somebody says because the person saying it claims to be a man of God or a pastor or some tel you know televangelist somewhere. Uh, it's just assumed that this person has the truth because of their claim. When we've never observed their fruit, you know, part of the reason Timothy can be firm in his faith in the midst of persecution is because he remembers the people that he's learned it from, right? And I think it's talking about Paul, but it's probably talking about Eunice and Lois, right? We talked about them in chapter one. They were the ones that taught him from childhood. And so remembering the character of those individuals is paramount for him to uh, stand firm in the faith. You have a firm foundation, so uh, you have a firm foundation and be encouraged in that and use that as um, a reason to believe what it is that you have been convicted of since childhood. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, um, we're commanded to do this. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. That's kind of the description of what we had in verses 2 through 5, right? But inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Right? So this is just a, a command and a, a, I guess an exhortation to all of us to be checking in to the people and the voices that we're listening to. Uh, the books that we read, making sure that the things that we are regurgitating come from reliable sources, and then using that as, as a foundation. I mean, when you think about um, part of the reason it's important to know our history is not just because it helps us to not repeat past mistakes, but also provides us with encouragement. When we think about those, uh, those who have gone before us and have been persecuted, you know, and you think about the way in which God stayed faithful to them. And that's what Paul says here to Timothy, right? From all these persecutions, the Lord rescued me. That ought to serve as an encouragement to you. So, so one, you want to be careful to vet people because you want to make sure you're trusting a reliable message. But two, it should serve you as encouraging when you are in times of difficulty. You can look back at those who have gone before you and remember that God has been faithful to them. Um, maybe some of you have people in your life that 
that's, that's been true of. You've watched the way in which they, God has been faithful through their lives, and so that encourages you to stay true as well. I know that um, a couple of weeks ago, and I've already mentioned it, Pastor Tim brought up um, Russell and Darlene. Now, I remember her first name this time, but I still forget her last name. Who wants to tell me what her last name was? Diebler, right? Okay, so something that, like like that type of a story is, should be encouraging to us. Okay, if she can do that, you know, I can make it through whatever struggle I'm going through in life. A couple of years ago, um, my parents said, I don't even remember why they were watching or how they had found it, but um, there's a film and there's a book too, but there's a film called Tortured for Christ. Is anybody familiar with that story? Richard Warmbrandt. And I, I didn't even know they were watching. I just happened to be over at their house and they had it on and I sat down and I still like almost weekly and, and I think about you know what I'm, I'm not Richard Warmbrandt you know every time I have a tendency to get discouraged and to be um, you know to gripe and complain it's like I have this encouragement in the back of my mind that you know I could have it a lot worse he spent the part of the reason I think his story is so um, I guess has such an effect on me is because he spent 15 years in a prison I mean a lot of times you hear these stories and it's like okay maybe I could do it for three or six months but 15 years in a, in a prison where they're basically torturing you you know I mean that's Unbelievable, and so this this faithfulness of one man can be an encouragement to me, and hopefully it is to others of you as well. And and it's that godly perseverance that he had that is the thing that is serving as the encouragement. And Paul even says that regarding the false teachers, he contrasts his life with the false teachers. Go back to verse thirteen. He says, "Well, I'll, I'll go to verse twelve. He's talking about himself, and he says, "Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted." And then he contrasts that by saying, well, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so, you know, in contrast to um, the, the missionaries that have been persecuted in the past, there are the evil imposters, the sheep's dressed in wolf's clothing, that flee at any sign of persecution. And they'll deceive people to even avoid it. All right, and so hopefully we can uh, take from this particular passage of Scripture the idea that by observing the fruit of others, we can make sure the message that we're believing in is trustworthy, but also... Um, we can have encouragement in times of persecution or difficulty. So that's the second point, observing fruit. First one was staying rooted, and the second one was observing the fruit of those who teach us. Um, anybody want to comment at this point? I've talked for a while without giving you a chance to interject. Just something, <clears throat> something caught my eye. And thought of, they're reversing deceiving and being deceived, mm -hmm. and the false the false teachers and all that also need to be prayed for. Mm -hmm. They believe that what they're preaching is right. Yeah. And so they are in there's they're deceiving others while at the same time they are being deceived. Yeah, that is a it's a frightening passage, isn't it? I yeah. mean, yeah. Uh, it's kind of like Matthew 7 where those who stand before God will think that they are going to enter into the throne room of God and and be rejected at at the gates. Um and you know, also in line with that you know, let's work out our own salvation, make sure we're not being deceived, right? But you're right. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago when we looked at the characteristics of people that we should avoid. And one of the characteristics is those, they, they don't love good. And we talked about the way that was peculiar because nobody would describe themselves as people who, as somebody who doesn't love good, right? That can only be true because the person is actually being deceived in the process of deceiving others, right? So absolutely. I talked about referencing those women again here. So in the second point, the first point we were talking about staying rooted and how uh, we'll, be let, we'll be led astray by our various passions if we're not rooted in the gospel. We'll turn Christianity into something that gives us what we want in the flesh. The second point, observing fruit of those who teach us. I think when we don't do this, we become like those women in the, fact, in the way that they are always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth, right? When we don't have um, the discernment that is required of us as Christians to observe those who are teaching us, 
what happens? You, you get led astray by every single person who comes along and says, I've got the answer or the solution to this, and it becomes a popular movement within the realm of Christendom, and then you're after that, but then the next couple of years move by and you're after something else. Right? Uh, Ephesians 4, verse 14, is Paul talking to the church in Ephesus, and he says, uh, here's why you've been given apostles and teachers, ministers of the Word of God, and in verse 14, he states the reason. He says, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Right? Maybe you know somebody like that who's always carried away by something that is irrelevant at this time, but then five years from now, they'll be talking about something totally different. Um, in some ways, I think that's because they have not had a proper anchor to the gospel message, and they haven't observed faithful men before them who have taught that message uh, so that they're not, you know, led astray every time something new comes along. So let us not be like those women described in verses 6 through 7 um, that are always following our passions or are led astray because we're always learning but never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. The third point, and this is where I figured I'd spend most of my time, so it'll probably go into next week, but is the significance of the Word of God in, uh, in our faithfulness, in our steadfastness, right? So the significance of the Word of God. Again, first, we want to stay rooted in the message, and second, we want to observe the fruit of those who have taught it. But at the same time, um, that message is found in the Word of God, and the fruit or the, the benchmark that we can use to observe the fruit of those that we're uh, following is also the Word of God, right? So we can't do any of those first two points unless we know uh, the, the, the basis, the core of where we get it from, right? The significance of the Word of God. So, first of all, in verse. Um, 15, it says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Uh, Chelsea already mentioned it, and we briefly talked about it last week. Uh, but that sacred writings there is, is the same translation that is almost always rendered as it is written. So you think about like Jesus. Somebody could check me on this because I, I don't want to say something that's inaccurate, but I'm pretty positive I meant to look it up before I, um, sometime this week, and I forgot to. But where Jesus is in the desert, and he's tempted by the devil, and he says, Have you not read? It is written, it's written, same, same, same word, translated here, right? Uh, these sacred writings. So we're always talking about the scripture, you know, what God has spoken. And as we've already talked about a little bit, these sacred writings are able to make you wise for salvation. So what's, what's ironic about it is we're talking about uh, unhitching the Old Testament and the New Testament, and we tend to just have a focus on the New Testament. It, actually, it, it almost seems like if you had to—I don't, I don't want to say this and be a heretic, but I'm just saying just based on that particular statement, it almost seems like if you had to pick one, you should choose the Old Testament, right? Here's the promise of what is coming. I, I, I don't really mean that. I'm just saying that Paul is saying there is enough in the Old Testament to, you know, make you wise for salvation. Does that make any sense? I don't—don't I don't, don't, don't unhitch your New Testament either, I guess is what I'm saying. But at the same time, Paul is saying there's enough there in the Old Testament or the First Testament— uh, to make you wise for salvation, which I don't think we often realize. Right? Uh, if you agree with me that those sacred writings are the Old Testament. Um, and I'm reminded there of the road to Emmaus, and I know this is a little bit of a longer passage of Scripture, so try to pay attention with me here for a second. But um, Luke 2, 13 through 28, is the story of that happening. And many of you are familiar with it, but you know, after Jesus has died and he's resurrected, uh, he's walking and comes across two men on the road to Emmaus, and uh, they're dejected because um, they think that their, their pope, their, their potential candidate for Messiah, is dead. I'll just read it to you. Therefore, or that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. 
but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels, who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they did not see him. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then here's the key. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. And so Jesus appeals to the Old Testament, the sacred writings, to explain himself and give them an idea of how he was fulfilling all of the prophecies. And so Paul then reminds Timothy here in this passage, make sure you stay acquainted with those sacred writings that have made you wise for salvation to this point. And we ought to you know, do the same. Right? And we've talked about that a little bit. But any thoughts uh, or comments at this point? On anything that's been said so far? Go ahead, Bennett. Yeah, I think I, I like all that you said. Uh, one of the problems why a lot of people fall for these false preachers mm -hmm. is that they don't read the scriptures consistently mm -hmm. or they don't make themselves available to the means of grace. Because these things take time, they take investment, they take a lot of, you know, mm -hmm. putting yourself in there. So that you'll be well equipped. Mm -hmm. You see, but a lot of people don't do that. Mm -hmm. So if you don't do that, then you look for somebody who supposedly knows the scriptures. And uh, Chris was talking about the fact that they don't know what they are doing. Some of them know, mm -hmm. but they manipulate it so that they can control you, mm -hmm. and then you pay them money. Mm -hmm. They control you so that every, in, in, in Africa we have things like that mm -hmm. because you have people who will not go to church regularly. They just come in every now and then. You know, and they still want God to help them. Mm -hmm. So they fall for these things. And then the preachers control them. And people pay huge money. Mm -hmm. They make merchandise of people. Yeah. So I feel that it's one, many churches are not preaching the gospel consistently mm -hmm. as they should. Mm -hmm. And then people are not making themselves. If you don't even go to a good church, but you are doing serious Bible reading on your own, mm -hmm. then you wouldn't fall for this hero worshiping. Mm -hmm. And then you fall for these kind of you know, uh, mm -hmm. foolish things that people have preached. And for me, it's, it's so sad because imagine that you call yourself a Christian for so many years when you are being deceived, mm -hmm. you know, and what we tell you, if you should try to point these things out to people and they tell you, you are a heretic, mm -hmm. you are narrow-minded, you don't know what you are talking about. And unfortunately, these people have filled the media all over the place. Mm -hmm. And so people think that this is it, mm -hmm. you know, so I think it's, it's sad that we have to go back to the scriptures. And yeah. It, it, it takes investment, I think so. Yeah, that's why the third point is the significance of the Word of God. And basically, in a nutshell, you could just say, be like the Bereans, right? That's what they did. They didn't just take it at face value. And I, I was going to include this story, but because you, you made me think of it, I had forgotten earlier when we were talking about observing the fruit of those who are teaching things. But I remember one day, a lady coming into my office and when you're talking about the markets, it's always doom and gloom. People always think, you know, this is going to be the end. And I'm not saying that there won't be an end. It's often a good opportunity to 
to share a little bit about you know the return of Christ. But the point is that you know it, that's just common. I just kind of understand that's going to happen. But this was uh, 2020. COVID had already happened. Um, from a financial standpoint, the markets had started to come back. But she was sharing with me how this person that she had heard, I don't know if it was TV or where she heard this, but um, this, this guy had seen a vision of you know a fist that hits the earth. This was going to happen in November. And the earth was just going to shatter like bits of confetti. And I was just you know like, I don't know what to do with that, first of all. But second of all, like, do you even know this guy that's talking? No, I don't even know who he is. You know, I, no, she didn't say that. I didn't ask her, but I, I know for a fact that she didn't. Um, but the point is, you know, like, how... Simple-minded, right? If she had been even slightly connected to the Word of God, you might say, "Wait a minute, I should at least think about this before I just receive it as the truth." But that's, you know, kind of common in today's culture. You got somebody who really is not familiar with anything that Christianity teaches, and some guy on the internet comes up and says that the Earth is going to explode like confetti, and you know she's going to pull all of her investments out because of it. You know, it's just just like really um, bizarre behavior because there's no discernment, right? And there's no connection to the Word of God. She didn't observe the fruit of the guy who was teaching her. She couldn't have a conviction in him like Timothy could because she didn't have that foundation. And um, she's certainly not staying rooted in the message of the gospel. It's you know returning this into something that I don't think it should be. So that's a real example of where it happened, and I meant to share it, but you're 100% right. Uh, if we stay like the Bereans, be a lot less likelihood that we'll be led astray or we'll be in the category of those who are being deceived, right? And um, that's a good reminder. Let's continue on here for, well, it's 1028, I guess. But um, basically... I said all earlier that the sacred writings, I think there is talking about the Old Testament, but then Paul talks about all Scripture. Um, the, I think the Scripture in your translation, at least in mine, S is capitalized, right? Uh, it's all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be equipped, complete, equipped for every good work. So one of the objections that we hear today to the idea of the New Testament canon and the Scripture itself is that uh, the the old or the people who are writing it themselves really had no idea they were writing anything inspired. They really had no idea that what they were writing is was the Bible as we now know it. And that was a later development that a church kind of got together and decided about or decided upon in the third or fourth century. Um, I don't think that's true, and I think you can prove that from Scripture itself. I think here's a perfect example where Paul is saying all Scripture is breathed out by God. I think he intends, like, what I'm writing you right now is breathed out by God. And um, I was, some of you, does anybody have the NASB? Some of, some of that, some, the NASB, I think, says inspired by God. All scripture is inspired by God, where our ESV says breathed out by God. And I think the breathed out by God is a better translation. Uh, but Amber is a nurse, and so what did, what did you tell me this week that inspired was... Uh, yeah, so spire, you think about that root. We, and you were saying how when you never liked it when people said somebody expired. That's the official term in the hospital, right? Somebody dies, they expire. But really that's because they breathed out their last breath, right? And then when you talk about like, I would assume like perspire probably has some of the same connotation or whatnot, but this spire is breath instead of inspire is to breathe into. So even in the um, NASB where it says inspired, what Paul is saying here is that the scripture is God's literal breath. It is God's word, right? This is not just some thought from men. Uh, this is actually what God has to say to us. And so uh, if you think that the objection holds water that, you know, hey, the Bible was just something that was developed later on, I don't know how you get around a passage like what we just read or uh, maybe a passage in 1 Thessalonians 2 where Paul says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in, your, in you believers. And so there again, a claim from Paul saying, what we're writing to you actually carries more weight than the word of an average man. Right? This is the word of God. 
Uh, Peter says, For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Again, even if you disagree with the idea that these men are speaking for the Word of God, you cannot say or object to the idea that they thought they were writing the Word of God. Right? That's what I'm getting at right here. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16 says, And count it, Count patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them which are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. The other scriptures implies that what Paul is writing is scripture. right? And so the point is, and we'll just end it on that, we'll come back next week and talk about what that which is God breathed has the ability to do in our lives, right? It helps the ability to equip us for every good work. It's useful for teaching, uh, for rebuke or proof, um, for correction and training in righteousness. And we'll talk a little bit more about that, but laying the foundation that uh, we have to at least acknowledge that the writers of Scripture believed that what they were writing was breathed out by God and inspired by God, and that's why it carries authority. And that's why we have to be rooted in it in order to stay firm in the midst of the trials and the persecutions. So it's 1030, um, but... Does anybody have any thoughts or comments, things that stood out to you today, um, or you know, ideas, things I can do better? I'm open to that too. Go ahead. Yeah, I think that. I mean, you said scripture is all scripture is inspired, and then mm -hmm. it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, that the man of God may be perfect. Mm -hmm. You know. So what do you do about people who dream dreams and think that that is how God is speaking to them? At the end of the day, it's what scripture is telling you. We don't, we're talking about objective truth. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I'm, I'm saying this because there are a lot of people who put in dreams are a big deal. Uh, if somebody sees something about you and then he comes to tell you, oh, this is it. You know, those things are not objective. You would want to yeah. wait, wait them. And I see this because this is one way that by which people control people. Mm -hmm. Sadly, in Ghana, one former Baptist preacher mm -hmm. wrote a book, How to Interpret Dreams, mm -hmm. and <laughs> because he was speaking to the culture. Sure, sure, yeah. You know, so things like that, I don't know whether in America, things like that are dreams yeah. and prophecies. You know, if you go to Ghana, the first night is a big deal, mm -hmm. because people are going to prophesy into mm -hmm. the new year. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And even those who don't go to church, they want to go and listen to those prophecies. Mm -hmm. And you go and you go there, and it's, it's, it's just garbage. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah, it's, um, I think it is prevalent here too. And um, I lost my train of thought as I was, I had something to respond. But um, anyway, yeah, it's, it's um, we got to be rooted in the Word of God. And it's, oh, I know what, it, it's not. God breathed. It's not scripture. All scripture is God breathed, and I don't think anything else is God breathed. Therefore, anything else that somebody says God said to them still holds a different nature by the very definition of the fact that it's not God breathed. This is God breathed. That's the distinction, right? So you're you're putting your faith in something that is, as you said, totally subjective and not breathed out by God, but rather it's just you know interpreted by somebody who's fallible here on earth. And um, I would even say that it's probably not even true in a lot of cases. But um, because we're up on time here, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll dismiss. God, I thank you for your word, and I thank you for the reminders that you give us that um, your word is sufficient for us, that um, we are to stay rooted in the message that it preaches, 
Uh, and I thank you for the faithful men and women who have gone before us who have uh, been examples of the faith and how we can observe the fruit in their lives and, and um, that in doing so we're convicted even more deeply of the truths that they've taught us. And I pray that um, those of us in this room could be that to the next generation, that we would be faithful uh, even in uh, a culture that seems to be slowly dissipating with respect to their uh, holiness and reverence for you. We pray that um, we would be a light on a hill and that uh, maybe generations from now, those uh, who are still faithful to you would look back to our example as uh, something that gives them encouragement. But we thank you most of all for the gospel message that you loved us in our sin and sent Jesus Christ to die in our place. Um, for that, we praise you. Amen. Amen.